what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm hanging out with Alicia. And if you don't know her, she is a producer and educator with a long history in electronic music. She has releases on record labels such as Gravitas, Monster Cat, Lowly Palace, Ninja Tune, Atlantic Records, and the list goes on. She's composed for TV, film, and multimedia outlets, including the National Film Board of Canada, Vice Magazine, BuzzFeed, Facebook Music. She's also toured and performed all over the world, including festivals like Coachella, Boiler Room, Lightning in a Bottle, Shambhala. Today we had a fun conversation. We talk about a lot of different things and a lot of good nerdy things, specifically with Ableton Live as well. So make sure you stick around and listen till the end. But she shares her musical background. She shares different ideas on how to organize your Ableton Live projects, your user library. Um, we talk about fun Macs for Live devices. She shares in detail her vocal chain, which I thought was interesting, as well as her technical setup when she performs live with real instruments as a hybrid DJ setup, which was pretty cool. Before we jump into today's episode, don't forget to join the email list. That's the best way to connect with me and get new episodes before everybody else does. And also I'm sending out the occasional fun free downloads and devices for Ableton Live so that you can make bangers. You can find out more details in the show notes about that. Make sure you give Alicia a follow. Much love for listening to the podcast. If you hit that like subscribe button, I'd really appreciate it. And without wasting more time, let's jump into today's episode. Well, you moved here from Vancouver, right? I moved first. I moved to California for two years and then I moved to Colorado after that. Oh, dope. So what brought you to Denver then? Oh man, like so many things, but I mean, music, the music scene was the main thing for sure. Yeah, same. And uh, I already had a lot of friends out here. Yeah, this seems like the scene, especially the electronic music scene is really thriving. There's constantly shows. I have to be careful at like how much I spend every week paying for tickets. Even if I get in for free, there's still like 20 other shows that week I want to go to. It's crazy. I mean, there's always a friend in town. There's always somebody coming through. So it, you have to kind of manage yourself or you can just be perpetually going out. That's what I found. Yep. 100%. Cool. So you were just in Barcelona too, not too long ago, right? What were you doing over there? Well, I was in, actually, I was in Valencia, which was about three hours south of that. And I was the professor of music production and technology innovation, um, specializing in music production, which is basically an Ableton Live course, and then sound design, which is level two. So I was out there at the school for a few years, and then I changed direction a little bit, but I just loved Spain so much. I, I stayed longer. Yeah, I've never been. There is a person that I know pretty well. Her name's Early Bird. She also lives there. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah. She was a, a fellow, actually, when I was teaching, and she helped me a lot when I was getting started at the school. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I think we met through Instagram, actually, random enough. But she is like an Ableton person as well. I think she taught at Berkeley a couple times. Yeah, that's yeah. that's where I was teaching. But yeah, she was a fellow there in the same time. So definitely yeah, have met her. Small world. So what are you up to these days? Well, I kind of, um, over my career, I've done a lot of different side quests, one might say, you know, like obviously always playing shows and doing live stuff and making tunes was a passion, but I've kind of gone off into film composition, sample packs, just general sound design stuff. And I just really love the stimulation of like slightly different ways of playing with sound and with audio. 
So these days I've been doing a lot of different explorations of that, especially once COVID was going on and, you know, not, nobody was playing a lot of shows anyways. It was sort of a perfect opportunity to see what else is going on. So uh, for the last year, I was working with one of my mentors, Matt Black from Cold Cut, who is also the co-founder of Ninja Tune. Yeah. He kind of approached me. We were already working together doing a lot of small projects. So I've actually made the built-in sample pack for his app, Jam Pro. I've done licensing music with Ninja Tune, and I've also collaborated with him. And he just said, hey, I have a crazy idea. Do you want to throw like a DMC championships for live electronic music? And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, sounds great. So for the last year, we kind of pulled together this, you know, obviously it started with community building first. One of the things I was the strongest on is, hey, Matt, we can't just drop out of the sky and have a competition. We have to, you know, prove ourselves. We have to show up and connect with the community and show them like that we're here to just bring people together. And so over the last year, we built a community also connected with my Discord community, which has been going on for a few years and just built up a real group of people who were passionate about music production and performance. And we then had four rounds in Bristol, New York, uh, a virtual round that was online with Audius and You Suck at Producing. And then the finals were in Barcelona. So that is where I ended up having a really, really fun final championship. We had prizes from, you know, Native Instruments and Loop Masters and Erica Sense. And our winner, cool. Ryan Reset, is this really awesome audio visual artist from Toronto uh, doing like Novation Launchpad light shows and all kinds of stuff. So I guess now I'm I'm super excited in uplifting others, which has always been a mission of mine, just to like inspire other people to be creative and to collaborate and connect. And that's that's sort of like how I relate to humanity. And now yeah. as I sort of move away from just focusing on touring, it's giving me more energy to plan learning experiences, workshops, events like this, and just community channels to connect. Because I think that just being a musician these days, the connection is a little weird with with social media and everything. And I don't know, exploring, like learning together, because even when I'm the teacher, I learn so much from my students. I think that sharing that experience is just a whole new way to share music and experience art. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but I 100% agree. I saw the competition you were talking about with Underbelly, Tim, you said producing. He was on the podcast a while ago. And uh, there was like a remix competition. So I was following that. That looked interesting. And that was sponsored by Audius, right? Yeah, yeah. Company. We had different sponsors for each round, but that was their round for sure. Okay. I love that. I think community is can never be like overrated when it comes to like what we do. Whether you're a teacher or you're just like producer, I think having some sort of community is like essential to having mental sanity, especially when like you're just constantly working on music in a dark cave by yourself. As an artist, like, you know, whether it's on Discord or whether it's like meetups in person or teaching or joining some kind of educational community. Yeah, that's helped me stay sane over the last few years for sure. Absolutely. We need more human contact, especially the more remote and virtual we get. Like I am the first one to jump on and be like, I love tech and I love virtual abilities to connect. But I think that reminding ourselves that, hey, we still do kind of need that connection. And if, especially if we can't be together in person, we need to feel it some other way. Yeah. Did you jump into the Ableton Loop Create event this year that was last week? They had a Discord server. It was new. 
Yeah, I saw that. I, I'm so stoked on everything that Ableton is doing because they, they've always been so into connecting with the community. And then they always have these things on days when I'm like traveling or not there. So I looked from afar. <laughs> uh, did you go? Was it was it fun? I did. Yeah, I poked my head in. Um, yeah, it was a pretty good attendance. Like the it was a very, very crowded Discord server. Um, like when you posted something, it was kind of hard to follow because there was like 30 other people within five minutes that commented down the thread after you did. But oh, wow. overall, but it was a cool concept. They had different topics and people could create their own forums and share ideas. Um, I created like one forum in there for people to share like sample packs. There's a couple of people that posted in there. So that was fun. Um, but yeah, it was a good community. I found that most of the people that attended that seemed like they were new to intermediate um, type of Ableton users. But yeah, I think it was a cool concept. I know that a year or two ago, they actually had like a virtual hangout. Were you a part of that? It was like, but it wasn't yes. actually. Yeah, I was I was in a couple of those with a lot of really cool musicians whose work I really love. It was like playing The Sims, but like a really crappy version. You could just like drag your little avatar into these little bubbles and then you could hang mm -hmm. out with that bubble of people. And mm -hmm. uh, that was fun. Yeah. I hope they do an in-person loop event sometime soon. Oh, I'm really excited for that, especially spending more time in Europe and it'll be easier for me to sort of get over to Berlin or any of those places. Yeah, same, same. Did you go to the one in LA? It was like 2019, I think. Yeah, 20, 2019, there was, that was the first year I went to Spain and I was so caught up with just like the joy and nervousness of going from being, you know, more of a one-on-one -on -one teacher to being a university professor. So yeah. I was busy uh, blowing my own mind, trying to sort of write new curriculums and courses and yeah. explore. So I was, I was going through my own mental loop end. <laughs> Your own mental loop. Yeah, no, I feel that too. I, uh, I kind of had to take a step back from teaching a little bit right now, just because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I know with a lot of Ableton certified trainers and other educators, especially in electronic music, like the reason we got into teaching a lot of times is just because we love to create ourselves and make music. And then sometimes the teaching becomes a grind in itself. It kind of takes away sometimes from us having our me time and being able to have that space and time for us to create for ourselves. Like, I don't know how you deal with that because I know you're hella busy, like you're teaching you're creating, you're joining all these communities, you're running communities, you're doing remix contests, you're yeah, doing sp absolutely. sponsorships. Yeah. I know it's been, it's been a bit crazy and I, I kind of on the same page with you. I, that was part of the reason I sort of moved on was managing that many students and then, you know, spending all my ear time listening to them didn't give me a lot for myself. Yeah. So I, I figure now I d dedicate more of my time to mentoring work, which doesn't, you know, tire my ears out. It's just a lot of typing and a lot of sometimes just holding space and encouraging people, which, which, you know, allows me to still work on my own stuff. And then as far as my side quests, they are more on weird sound design. And that was one sort of morphology that I went through when I became a professor. I always loved sound design, but I think being a musician first and coming from, you know, a piano playing and singing perspective, it was like, I would always write the song first and then the sound design would come in later and sort of augment or replace the parts I was already writing. And then through teaching sound design, I kind of morphed into this one of those weirdos, like my friends, like Mr. Bill or Bill Gates, where like I can sit there just making strange sounds happen and then 
being inspired to compose from that process instead. And I think everybody at least once needs to shake up their habits and their processes, you know, because it's no matter mm-hmm. how experienced you get, sometimes that's even a crutch. Sometimes it's easy to get into this this zone of this is how I do things the same way every time. And so I think the biggest thing I came away with, the, the positive inspiration from teaching was now I can't get enough of crazy sound design. And often, even if I'm quickly writing an idea, I just have this need to make my own unique little sound to immediately just get a different part of my brain firing. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, if you're if you're going to teach, you have to be very careful to keep a little bit of energy for yourself, you know, like the whole oxygen mask saying you got to you got to give yourself that time. And if you don't have time and all you're doing is outputting, you're Mm going to burn out. Oh, yeah, totally. I started to feel that recently. And I just started journaling, which actually I heard Il Gates, you mentioned him. Uh, he did a workshop, a free workshop at Cervantes Theater, which is a, a dope venue in Denver here and uh, got to hang out with him for a little bit and see him there. And one of the things he was talking about is like just making a habit of journaling and just like writing out your thoughts first thing in the morning. It's just like a good practice to like, just get yourself into the flow of like being centered and that spills out into creativity. But yeah, he talked a lot about that kind of stuff, like mental workflows. I thought that was really good. Um, Absolutely. I think writing things out, I've, I've actually started using notebooks, like physical ones. And sometimes just, it's not about, you know, looking at it again, even it's like the process of just writing something out by hand etches it into your brain in a different way than just typing yeah. and deleting. So it's true. <laughs> it's the same way that we're all like, you know, we were excited about digital audio. And then we once we got it, we we're like, oh, how can we make it sound more analog? How can we roll back to those imperfections that actually made it look really good? And so for me now, it's like all these notebooks, all these pens and just writing and getting it out in a whole different way. Yeah, that's true. Like technology is really interesting in that sense. Like even from the standpoint of like, we came from tape machines to digital and then everybody in the studio was like, this is awesome. We don't have to like calibrate tape machines anymore. And then now we have plugins that emulate tape machines to go back to that sound. It's like a weird full circle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. This episode is sponsored by Isotope, one of my favorite companies in the whole world. Most of us probably know who Isotope is at this point. It's no surprise. But if you didn't already know, they released the latest version of a fan favorite mastering plugin, Ozone, which is honestly mind-blowing. Many of you out there are already using Ozone for your mixing and mastering. It's become the industry standard, we all know. And I've been using Ozone since version 5, way back in the days. I'll be honest with you, they've constantly been updating and upgrading and adding new modules From 8 to 9, you might be wondering, okay, why does 10 matter, Dan? Like, is it really that much better? And it totally is. I would argue with anybody that Ozone 10 is actually worth the upgrade with its new stabilizer module. It has new AI algorithms to make mastering faster than ever and easier. It kind of feels like cheating, to be honest with you. I've used it to master my latest and greatest tracks. It is extremely balanced and smooth with that stabilizer module I talked about. Also with a new impact module for sophisticated sonic improvements. Also, when it comes to referencing, which anybody who knows what they're doing and mixing and mastering knows how important referencing is to tuning your ears to make sure you get the best quality sound. You can use their mastering assistant, which is even better than it was in 9. And it's using groundbreaking technology with an improved UI that keeps you in your flow. 
Visit isotope.com to learn more about mastering and also take advantage of the 10-day free trial of Ozone. So you can test it out, try it out for yourself, try that mastering assistant, play with the new modules. And I think it's honestly worth the cost to polish your tracks and release them with confidence, as Isotope says. So check it out. Highly recommend. Hit that link in the show notes for more information and back to today's podcast. Well, I'd love to get to know a little more about you, and then maybe we can get a little nerdy and talk about some like different workflows that you use and stuff in the studio and on stage. Um, I know that you're like performing and all that good stuff. Like, what's your background growing up with music, and how did that eventually get you into Ableton? Well, um, definitely, my family is very musical and artsy, and like the more family members I keep connecting with, the more I see how much that thread runs through my family. But more in a traditional sense, more like classical and jazz. And obviously like, you know, this music that we make did not exist in my grandparents' generation. But um, that's to say that I was encouraged in a very classical format. You know, I did piano from a really young age. I was in choir. I played like the flute a little bit in school nice. band. And I always enjoyed writing. And, you know, I was always kind of just humming my own melodies from, from day one. I've never, I'm not that person that knows the lyrics to all the songs. And sometimes it's funny, like people like aunts and uncles, they're like, oh, you're a DJ. Like, do you know this song? Do you know this song? And I'm like, I don't know any songs. I've been like <laughs> so deep in writing my own stuff for years. Yeah. So once I started getting into computers, which was also pretty young, cause I was a nerd, I kind Same. of started to see the evolution of early things like samplers through a lot of my friends and just waited and waited for it to get cheaper and to shrink inside the box so that young me could afford it. And in the meantime, was just DJing and touring and kind of just getting my hands dirty and like wherever I could and, and learning. And so I DJed, I played drum and bass and I emceed and that was like my thing for a long time. And in the meantime, just cool. started learning, playing with really early DAWs. You know, I used like Rebirth and Cubase 5 and, you know, I, I Reason and I tried everything. And I remember actually early Ableton too, when it was very basic, you know, and it didn't even have like MIDI or whatever. And basically slowly because there was no YouTube, there were no like learning assists. You basically had to like have a friend that showed you or read the manual. So I read a ton of manuals and just nice. kept learning and it was never enough for me. You know, I'm just, I'm crazy about new technology and new ways to be creative. So every time I got something dialed, it's like time to put something new in there that makes me terrified. And that's, <laughs> that's sort of the way I've worked ever since as a producer. <laughs> Yeah, we've come a long way since dial-up. Remember when your computer used to scream at you as a kid? Like it would oh, sound yes. like an, an angry Transformer robot and it took like a good five minutes just to like power on the computer at least. you just sit mm -hmm. there and wait, stare out the window before you could actually do anything. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I tried playing with the old trackers and still I, I respect my friends that use Rebirth and stuff or, or Renoise, I'm sorry. Renoise, it's just like a tracker. It's just like wow, that's just like old school code to me. But I did immediately love DAWs and I did love synth plugins because I like the idea. I love gear, don't get me wrong, but as a nomadic person, I also value portability and I value yes. spontaneity. Yes. So, you know, it's funny because now I'm getting a little bit older and I'm kind of in that stage of life where like all my friends, a lot of them have families. And now that they have, you know, 
big person jobs or something, they buy a wall of modular synths. And it's like, it's like the thing to do now in the middle age of like our generation, you know, and I'm just like, I'm not there yet. Let me just like pin myself down somewhere for a few more years and then I'll get all the hardware. But, but I just, I just really like the, the, the versatility of, of digital. And so even, even when I was teaching sound design, there was a guy who taught analog synths, which was its own course. And then I was all about like the VSTs. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, like the midlife crisis of modular. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a real thing. It I've really seen is. that with, I've seen that with a decent amount of studios and people I know. <laughs> and, and a lot of them don't even release music. So there's of that Of course too. not. It's about the process. <laughs> That's right. It's therapy. Some people pay hundreds of dollars a week to see therapists, or you could just buy modulars, really. It's, exactly. <laughs> it's cool. So like you just grew up playing with technology, and now you're like streamlining your gear, getting more into the box, it sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there were a lot of hurdles of like being really young and and being a girl at a time when there weren't a lot of girls and all this other stuff where I just got driven to know as much as possible and to kind of stay one step ahead of everyone. And that was sort of my defense mechanism. You know, I was Mm. like, this this gets me over my nervousness or like anything is just the fact that like, all right, I know what I'm doing inside and out. And so, like I said, you know, the thirst, the thirst for knowledge, I think has driven me throughout my whole career to just keep learning and to keep keep connecting with people around me to learn from them and to show them things and you yeah. know knowledge exchange is power i think oh it totally is i completely agree and i think like the more you know or like I, the more you get outside of your head and like exchange ideas and collaborate with others like it kind of gets you outside of your own insecurities I feel like sometimes for me personally like Mm -hmm. you know feeling inferior like oh I can't sound like that person but like if you're constantly on the grind and having having to challenge yourself to learn more you're forcing yourself to grow and then there's less time to think about the bullshit when of like am I good enough to release music or all this other stuff but because you're so focused on just moving forward yeah I love that I I feel like I can relate to that in a lot of ways because I just I, I grew up in like a small town And so there wasn't a lot of people doing stuff. And so I would just like constantly find different communities online or travel to Columbus, Ohio or other nearby larger cities and go to shows and like stick until the very end at like 2 a.m. and go up and talk to the artists and be like, how did you do this? Like, how did you do this? And like constantly trying to absorb all the info I could. Yeah. And a lot of new producers, they don't even know how that process works because they were just born into Facebook and TikTok and all these other things. And so, mm. you know, I run this Discord, which has been a passion project for about six years, and it's it's connected to the EDM production Reddit. And it just blows my mind at how many people come in and their first question is just like, how can I strategize my branding? Like, how do I how do I reinforce my branding? And, you know, then I'll ask them, OK, so um, wh- what do your tunes sound like? Oh, I haven't finished any tunes yet. And it's like the cart before the horse to make yeah. myself sound 500 years old. Um, just, <laughs> it's a good say. It, it's just crazy. It's just crazy to think about the fact that that's, that's the first place your mind goes. Because to me, it was like, I spent so much time just trying to find my sound. That was yeah. an odyssey. And then by the time I found my sound, it was like my branding was already there because it was just me. And nowadays yeah. people are kind of going the other way around. And so I always say the same thing. I just say, go and just make hundred more tracks and you're going to hate a bunch of them. And by the end of it, you'll probably have an idea of your branding. Yeah. I think a lot of that's baked into the culture of instant gratification. It's like, I want instant results. Just give me a plus B 
equals C or whatever. And then like, I can be an instant producer, but a lot of it is just like making a lot of really bad music that sucks until you get really good at it. And it's that discipline and constantly like working and growing. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's discipline is everything. I mean, practice is essential to getting better at pretty much anything in life. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the the thing about these shortcuts. I mean, I love tech that makes things easier, but sometimes I'm like, you know, if you just are all decked out with every single one of these plugins and you got like the melody composer on top of the sound composer, like at the end, at what point are you, are you even enjoying yourself? Like that's, then that's to me, it's just mystifying. It's like, okay, well, I guess that's sort of fun, like for five minutes, but for me, (laughs) so much of the joy is just that wild experimenting and that like wandering around to find an answer and then asking a new question in the process. I find that true for myself too, is like enjoying more of the journey and not just focusing on the destination really. Well, let's get a little bit nerdy. I'd love to talk about like some of your workflows and processes. And that's honestly a big reason why I do this podcast. So I could just pick people's brains and learn new little hacks and workflows. (laughs) <laughs> do you have like a specific process or like a special template that you use whenever you're starting a new song? Like, how do you typically go about that? Well, it's interesting. I think actually using Ableton has changed a lot of processes because instead of having a big master template, they make it so easy and accessible to have micro templates, to have like rack settings, to have, you know, little preset combinations. So, I think that, you know, when I used to use Logic more, I definitely started with a template with everything laid out and bust and everything. But Ableton has gotten so fast and a lot of the things that used to impede me, you know, like groups of groups, for instance, are not are not a thing anymore. So I think now I I do actually tend to start from scratch because so much of it for me is what I would call impulsive melody. like, And that's always just, I don't know if it's just from being a singer, piano player, but I hear melodies and, and I hear hooks in my head all the time. So a lot of the time I, I'm almost like fishing for it. I, I just sit down and I'm trying to catch it as fast as possible. Yeah. And so my old process would be sort of go to presets or, or like a piano instrument. But a lot of the time now, like I said, I'm, I'm so inspired by synthesis that... If I don't have that melody that I'm, if I do have the melody I'm trying to catch, sure, I'll just grab the quickest piano and hash it out and then save the MIDI and then actually start playing. But if I don't, um, I get really inspired now by specific types of processes within synthesis if you want to get really nerdy. So yeah, I'll get, go. I'll get, I'll get in that mood of like, okay, for instance, um, one of my favorite synths of all time that no one else ever used, so I kind of liked it for that reason too, is a synth called Gladiator by Tone 2. Oh, never heard of it. Uh, I know. And the interface, like, it's funny because I, I was teaching it. I actually implemented it in the sound design curriculum and it just has a horrible interface. No offense, <laughs> Gladiator. I love you guys. But, you know, it looks very old and antiquated. But for the longest time, it was the only synth that was out that was using spectral morphing synthesis. And then uh, Matt Titel came out with Vital and Vital yes. actually has a lot of spectral morphing capabilities within it. And so I geeked out hard because I've been sort of just waiting for something else to use what I consider to be like my favorite tech. And then Matt was like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I was inspired by Gladiator. And I was like, oh, yes. there you go. The That's only cool. other person that used Gladiator has made a synth. My dreams are coming true. 
So yeah. I, I guess I'm, I got really deep into vital, especially because it was so new. Um, and I was the first person writing a university class on it. So while I was writing the class, I spent some time with the developers and sound designers and just went, okay, this is next level. Because what I like about spectral morphing is that it makes these tiny fluctuations in the timbre of a sound that previously you would have to do hundreds of, you know, modulations and automations and mod matrix aux routings. And, you know, in order to get a complicated texture like that, you would have to do things like that. And now with spectral morph, it's, it's almost like how FM synthesis, where you just make tiny moves, like you make tiny moves and you get such textural variation. So um, that is honestly a part of my process where I might just geek out on a tangent and be like, oh, I like, I really want to like make a kind of a plonky sound with spectral morphing filters and then I'll go in and in the process, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say that I sit there every time and in 20 seconds, I get exactly what I was thinking of. More often, I get something I totally was not thinking of, get really inspired and like, oh, wow, I don't know what I just did, but let's go that way. So yeah. I think that like really teaching it was was the best learning I could have done because I had to go deep. And then, you know, the ego in me as an artist was like, I want my teachings to be unique. I want them to be things no one else teaches, which means that you have to go so deep that <laughs> you yeah. discover you discover weird little things along the way. So I really nowadays like to geek out with, I, I do have, I think the, my favorite thing that I use the most in Ableton is actually like the simple favorites I feel like those are underused and some people don't even yeah, ever use them, especially with students, or they just have like the default ones turned on. But I've got like all the different colors and I have them sorted. And I think this is important for a reason and because we get in patterns. So for instance, if I find a reverb that I like, I'm probably like every time I need a reverb, just going to go dial that up and just go pull it mm -hmm. in. And I might forget about the six or seven other reverbs I have or like that free thing I installed that I never tried. When I sort my Ableton into you know, what I have a dimension category, which is reverbs and delays, they're all in front of me and I'm looking at them all. And suddenly I get, I might get inspired in a different direction and go, oh, I was going to use like Valhalla room. And like, I just remember that I have space modulator and like, what is that going to do? So I think that having systems set up where you can really look at everything all at once as much as possible kind of reminds you of the options while still having a structure where you're like, okay, I am looking for something kind of like a reverb or delay. Oh, here is everything I have in front of me. Um, because this is just a problem I noticed for myself was like, without having that organization, I would just use the same things, use the same tricks. Yeah, and, me too. Yeah. It's too easy to get stuck in that. So I love, I love doing that. And um, yeah, I also really love Foley, as you know, and and that's mm -hmm. that's a huge influence on, on me. I have lots and lots of folders, some neatly cut up, some more sloppy. And I love to just sometimes pull from them. If I'm really not inspired, it can be a really good starting point for a story to set the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it adds like your own original character to a track. Like nobody else is going to have that exact sound. It makes it unique. Yeah, Foley is fun. I've actually just started getting more into making my own sounds and then saving them into like the user library. Like my friend's own Denver chip company. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever had them. They're the best potato chips in the whole world. Shout out to Connor and Dylan. But I just recorded like 
literally 20 minutes of me eating chips and like doing stuff (laughs) (laughs) and I like makes actually a really good layer for a snare surprisingly anybody out there who has a bag of chips uh yeah just stuff like that it's been really fun Oh, exactly. And you know, this is, um, I used to work more in the film industry and post-production doing music editing and, you know, putting sound effects in and, and musical elements. And one of the things that my mentor taught me there was just that everything in life has a tempo and a rhythm. Like we are just unconscious of it, but like even the way that I speak to you right now, I have like a conversational rhythm and you have yours. People going out, doing things outside. It's just crazy that it's really true a lot of people think of Foley as like short hits, you know, and for sure I love making drums, but taking longer pieces where random things are happening and then suddenly dropping that into your song and shifting it around, you know, with the grid off, suddenly you'll just find this spot where everything is in time. And it is the weirdest thing, but I have done it time and time again. Like there are just beautiful moments in life where things are rhythmic and that can just completely change your, your beat. Because I think one of the things that bugs me the most about people who have just started making electronic music is usually how like stiff the beats are Mm. for good reason, because they're learning this program and they're just like dropping them on the grid. But Foley is one of those things that can really inspire you to loosen up and to sort of diversify your rhythm and, you know, create different accents on things. Yeah, 100%. Do you know Rob Late? Uh, I don't think so. So he is a prime example of somebody who does that kind of stuff. Like he'll just find the craziest things around his studio and just record them. And he's a phenomenal sound designer. So he does pretty makes entire songs out of nothing but Foley. And he was on the podcast a while ago. But yeah, you should check out some of his like TikTok or Instagram videos. But he's really into that kind of stuff. Oh, I love doing that. And, you know, Ableton is great for that too with the racks. It took me a long time because, you know, to be honest, uh, I was a dual DAW person. I always used Ableton for doing live shows because obviously it's like the only thing like that. But I used to produce more in Logic. And then as I was teaching and I was teaching Ableton all the time, I was doing sound design. I sort of very slowly kind of just moved over for ease of use. And, oh, the amount of things that you can do with a rack specifically to make Foley processing easier and better and vary it, you know, like that is definitely cannot be understated using things like the chain selector and like, you know, automating that and having a bunch of similar, but different Foley sounds like you can really get deep within the semi random human imperfection vibe. Just, just using those tools. Yeah. I've definitely played more and more with racks the longer I'm in Ableton. Like, it just seems like there's more possibilities shaping sound. Have you ever heard of Smooth Automator? It's a Max for Live device. Ooh, no, I love I love learning about Max devices. Yeah, it's it's a whole new world. One of the things that's really valuable with it is with the macro variations. So you can like take those snapshots of like a rack and then jump through the different presets of the positions of the macro knobs. <laughs> well, um, the th- the issue is if you wanted to say automate that process, say for the verse you want. Um, the macro variation one for the chorus you want macro variation two or if you want to jump like back and forth really quick for some fun sound design effect it just snaps instantly right Mm -hmm. and so smooth automator makes those macro parameters between the variations smooth so you could set the duration of time jumping between the macro variations so it's a smooth process as those different macros snap to position very, very cool because I, I actually really also enjoy plugins that have that capability. Like for instance, Comet, which is, you know, a reverb by Polyverse, which is the yeah, infected mushroom. Yeah. They, cool. um, they have multiple different reverb algorithms and you can automate 
the transition between the loading those. So you get these weird kind of oh, aliased really? pitchy things. And I, it's just a fun thing to automate, you know, it's like called like preset morph. And it's almost like, you know, Bill used to teach that sort of thing about just recording yourself, like toggling through a bunch of presets as they change between each other. And this is sort of a more almost like, yeah, like you said, like a smooth version of that. So that's cool. I think that that's a cool way of maybe turning any device into being able to do that sort of morphing. Yeah, I, I got an NFR for comment. I haven't played with it that much, but out of the box, it just sounds really clean. Has a good clean yeah. sound to it. I love digital reverbs. I think that they're so like cr crucial for storytelling because that can really take you either to like setting the stage of like, okay, I'm literally in this hall or I'm in an alien spaceship center <laughs> and, you know, things are coming at me. Like it's just cool, cool, interesting reverbs, I think, are, are underused. Yeah, I love a good alien spaceship sound. I'm into that. Sounds awesome. <laughs> Well, you were talking about organizing your library of sounds using collections with those different colored folders in live. Mm -hmm. It came out in live 10, right? I think it did. I think so. Yeah. I'm just curious, like, how do you organize those different colors, those folders? Well, it's funny because, you know, you are, you are limited by the fact that there's only, wait, one, two, three, four, five, seven, right? Yeah. Possible ones. So because of that, I had to be creative. So I have um, the red one for me is synths which uh, technically also includes samplers, but all my big, you know, contact, serum, all these plugins. The orange is is favorite Ableton settings, so little rack presets and things like that. Um, yellow is mixing and mastering, so, you know, like limiters and um, analyzers and things like that. Then I have green for distortion and glitching. I love distortions. I collect yeah. them. I mean, and I do find that with Ableton, as far as built-in plugins, the one area I think that they really lack is good distortions. Like, right, I personally, just just my just my feeling, I really okay. like um, unfiltered audios, indent. I really like FabFilter Saturn. Um, I haven't played with indent. That's the new one. Oh, it's really good in the way that you can sort of, it's almost like a modular synth format where you just sort of patch um, things together in order to connect them. It's just a fun interface. Okay. Um, then I have reverbs and delays, dimension, I call it, that are blue, vocal processing in the purple, and then the gray is dynamics and filters, so like compressors and EQs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, yeah, that's that's cool. I love that. That's good for anybody out there as well, like who just maybe needs help organizing some of their sounds. Um, exactly, exactly. Just just so you can look at it and then, and it can break your pattern just by reminding you that there's like 10 other ways to do it, you know? So many possibilities. So you shared a couple different plugins and devices that you like. You do a lot of vocal recording as well. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, like do you have go-tos or maybe you could even, if you're cool with it, explain your chain for your vocal processing because your vocals sound really clean. Yeah. And it's funny as, as much as I have blah, blah about being inside the box, this is one place where I do go out of the box because I would say that like, especially after now I, I am coming to you being back in my own studio for the first time, basically in like three years, you know, I've been away, I've been teaching, I've been living in these apartments in Spain. It's been very romantic, except that I don't have a studio there. And so I yeah. had to record in lesser conditions with different mics than I was used to. And so now I can come back and tell you that 
oh, so much of the quality of my vocals is from two things. Uh, one of them is the blue woodpecker mic, which is discontinued, but it's a ribbon mic. So it's got that like dark, smoky tone of like old jazz records. And its EQ response just happens to really work well with my voice. So my first tip is a good old analog of like, know your source. And I mean, me having my own voice, I've, I know it quite well. I've spent my whole life with it. I could probably draw you its EQ curve in, in my sleep. So <laughs> nice. I just, I, you know, I, because of that, I know immediately sort of how to set an EQ without even listening to how it's going to be. So mm. using that mic already corrects some of the uneven parts in my voice because it just complements it. And then I run that through my Avalon 737 uh, vacuum tube preamp compressor and EQ. Okay, so it's an nice. optical compressor and EQ and just, I have these slight settings and, you know, this is a piece of hardware, so there's no memory. So I have to just either take a picture of it or just remember where the settings were. But by the time it comes out of that, it's I have light compression, light EQ, and I overdrive the preamp a little bit with that mic. I just found my perfect sound. And so anything yeah. after that is almost just just like tiny icing or specific stuff to fit with the track. And then after that, when, once I'm inside the box, um, Wave CLA Vocals, it's such an old plugin now. I've been using it for years. It's, it's a classic. Pretty, yeah. It's a classic and it's good for just quickly getting your, yourself going. And I'm all in favor of that, especially when you're still writing. Like you want to get it sounding good because psychologically you need to hype yourself to keep going. So that's really important. Yeah. Um, I also have used Nectar at times. Um I still puts out Vocal Doubler, which is an amazing free plugin. I love talking about free plugins. So that one is the most realistic sounding doubler widener. That being said, my other tip, also very analog, is like just do four takes. Do four takes and then you can also stereo spread it. But it's it makes me laugh when people who have access to the vocalist, they'll just do one take and then like copy it and slide it and, you know, use all these stereo widening plugins. It's like... Nothing sounds as good as just having like 5, 10, 20, yeah. 50 layers of a slightly different vocal. So yeah. I have a lot of old fashioned standards like that because it's just, it's a classic clean sound. And then from there, I can do, you know, anything I want. Like I have my vocal already cleaned up and I can put in some weird distortions or strange reverbs and automate that. Um, but another thing that I tell my students that might be relevant to more people here is when people get caught up with effects, they tend to get so into like the wet versus dry knob as if it's like a final statement. And this is another great thing about Ableton is you don't have to put a reverb just on the channel and say wet dry, you know, you can use a sand, which is another common concept and you can blend it. And you can also make a rack within the track and have like a wet and a completely dry and you can actually change the volume levels of that. So there's, there's so yeah. many different ways that you can balance that. But I think that even when you're making the most milky reverby, like vaporwave thing, you need to have a little bit of that dry present layer mixed in there because otherwise you will lose like you won't be able to tell what the person is saying maybe sometimes you want that but you know what i mean like you need a little yeah. bit of definition that warmth yeah exactly so i've found that just that way of routing kind of enables you to get really close and intense on a vocal and say yeah no i don't want to pick 
between the balance of wet and dry. I would like to have this dry layer. And then we're going to make another chain in the rack and put all kinds of weird effects. And we're going to blend that in and out. And just separating that and also always EQ your reverb. My gosh, so many people, I see them come in with a vocal and all I do is cut the low end of the reverb and it just fixes the entire mix. Mm -hmm. So EQ your reverb. Like if we could in nature just control reverb the way we can, oh, it would be even better. But like, that's where that resonant boomy sound often comes. Like somebody has got the reverb cranked up and it's putting reverb on like 300 Hertz where you just, you don't want it at that point. Yeah, definitely. And delays too. I find Mm -hmm. that that's an important thing for sure, which is nice that um, like with the hybrid reverb now, which is like my new favorite reverb with live, uh, it has that built in EQ. You can just like switch that tab and carve it out. Exactly. And also like for people who are using just the stock reverb, I got to say like that reverb was made ages ago. It's not that good. (laughs) If you want a stock reverb that's newer, that's like not the hybrid reverb, the reverb inside of Echo is newer because Echo is a newer plugin. So you can actually like turn down all the echoey parts of Echo and you can just use the reverb in there. So if Mm -hmm. if you're somebody who only has stock plugins and you just want another option, I would always recommend that over the reverb that's stock. And I think that's another thing, right? Is people get the reverb and delay and they somehow think that it's not changeable. And like just every project, you know, I got so many student projects with default reverb, default delay on the set. It's like, hey, change it up, add something, you know, rack it, combine it, like do something to make it yours. Yes. Spice it up, please. There's so many better options for reverb out there than the stock reverb. No offense, Ableton, but it's no (laughs) secret, really. It's not. But you're right. The echo reverb is cool. I haven't really done a whole lot of just using that only as a reverb effect and just pull down like the feedback and really short delay time. That would be, yeah, that would sound good. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a really nice reverb and it's, it's just newer. So it's an improvement on that. Um, I also, I also like the convolution reverb, the max stuff. I think that's really neat that you can just drag anything in there and make that a reverb as well. Yeah. You could do that with hybrid reverb too, Mm -hmm. which is fun. Yeah. And on echo, like I just love making stuff dirty. If you turn on D for drive and then just crank up the input, jump that up like seven or eight DB gives it like a nice, like saturated warmth. Completely. And a lot of these like new plugins that are coming out, they are just kind of really cool chains that like in the past you would just assemble yourself. Like I'm really loving yeah. like Rift by Minimal Audio, yes. which is Love which is a lot Rift. like thermal too. And you know, they're like chains of like mod modulators and then like, you know, distortions and reverbs and flangers all together. And yeah. it's just such a fantastic, like, you know, we used to just build those and you can. And I think I got inspired to like build my own you know, the whole racks on racks thing. Oh, let me put this chain of effects inside this other chain of effects. Um, yeah. But it's it's really inspiring because like Rift in particular with like the bipolar distortion and like just a whole oh, other dimension to, to mess with. Yeah, just even, t- I talked about this in the last podcast, just even turning it on, it gives it like this like really HD kind of effect. It's like, it, I don't know, just even turning it on without having any preset, just the default just makes stuff sound thick. Yeah, you know what I think is um is super underrated, so I always love to talk about it, is um tension and collision. I think these are mm. like two things in Ableton that people are terrified of or just like or discouraged from. And yeah. 
you know, for good reason, like both of them in their default mode sound pretty bad. Like, so if you're just like instant gratification, if you just want to open it up, you're going to be like, oh, this is like the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. But I mean, what you're listening to is just a raw ground zero of physical possibilities. And that's what I find so magical about it is, first of all, not only can you design instrument sounding things, like things that have realistic texture to them. Um, but it's just, it's just a whole different hat than just sitting there and going oscillator, modulator. You're actually going, what is the string made of? What is the mallet made of? How yeah. hard is the person's finger striking the string? What kind of wooden body does this have? Mm-hmm. And you can get some mind-blowing uh, string and bell percussion sounds. So uh, I like to use collision to kind of make that really fat, organy house bass. Yeah. And you can kind of, you can do that with like using a couple different resonators and, and corpus, you know, which is the effect version of it is so fun to use over top of stuff. But I just think that most people, like they don't even think about collision as like, I could make a fat bass with this, but you can actually, you can make a Definitely. really thick, that sound and then tension for strings and for plucks is is really unbelievable. So my my thing for people who who would be scared of that is if you're going to open especially tension, stick like a limiter on it or just like make sure you're limiting it right away because it can have a very noisy bursts. Yeah. But once you get past that, it's it's so good and it gives such an organic feeling that like mm-hmm. operator is just not going to give you. Yeah, unless you process the shit out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. I feel like <laughs> collision and tension are like the stepchildren of Ableton. They just kind of get forgotten about sometimes. Seriously. And, you know, Applied Acoustics makes them and they are just an amazing like physical modeling company. They make Lounge yeah. Lizard, which is my favorite roads. So really okay. awesome plugins. Like and yeah, just if you're if you're scared, just try try again because you can make amazing things with it. And that's that's actually been inspiring a whole new musical direction for me. I just started making these plucky guitar violin hybrid type of sounds. And then yeah. it was like, oh, I want to write like a whole record like this. And so I've been really playing with them lately. That's really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there for people to think about and try out if they haven't already. You've done some composition for TV and film. I'm curious to know, like, what was that process like for you? Is that different than like your regular producing workflow or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love it because it is a different kind of collaboration where you have a visual story and literally a a story, a script, you know, and you have to augment that. So there's no real room for like ego and you're not trying to build people up for a drop, you know, you're not trying to wring the same emotional pattern out of people. So it's, and sometimes less is so much more, you know, like sometimes just a very simple pad or a couple of notes can, can really enhance a scene. So I think it's first, it's a process of humility. It's a process of just giving in and being almost a craftsperson, you know, instead of an artist and just going, all right, like I see this in front of me. I know the feeling and like what needs to flow through my fingers, you know? So I really love it because it's just an, another type of process, another type of inspiration and mm. kind of frees you from some of the pressures of making dance music bangers. Some of yeah. like the, you know, cause that is a little bit of a narrow scope sometimes, you know, you're always trying to have this tension and this resolution and these hooks and these ear candy and all these concepts of sort of popular songwriting that have taken over in electronic music. So I think it's a really nice disconnection from that and just go, okay, what does the story need? Like, 
How mm. how is everyone feeling right now? Instead yeah, of how are you feeling definitely. now? <laughs> yeah, so how do you feel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just fist pumping behind some decks. Yeah. So what is uh what are some of your favorite projects? I guess with TV and film that you've done so far. Um, I've done a couple of documentaries for the National Film Board of Canada, and those awesome. are really neat. Um, one of them was actually about gender fluid children, and this was like five years ago now. So it was it was a little bit ahead of the curve from when it was being discussed. And I really loved working on that because I had to write a slightly different theme for each one of the characters of the subjects of the documentary. And when I was a little kid, you know, there was this symphony, Peter and the Wolf, uh, I had it on vinyl and it's it's a classical symphony where each of the characters have very distinct instrumentation. So you know when the wolf is coming, you know when the little boy is there because there is a different orchestral instrument and a different theme. And I kind of went all the way back to that place in my head and started going, all right, like how do I define these characters thematically? And then how do I blend them together and take the audience there when that's necessary? So that's actually been something I really enjoyed is is character design through sound. Mm. And, you know, yeah. I can't I can't talk about all the projects I'm about to be working on, but I'm going to be doing a lot more product design over the next year and developing characters and experiences and using sound as that dimension, you know, to take people to the next level of the story. So um, that's cool. Yeah, I'm all about storytelling with sound design that way. Now, that sounds really interesting and probably will stretch you as far as like your production process and like just the creativity outcome that you have with writing in general i would imagine that like doing product design and these character developments and writing for that intention is probably going to stretch you in a lot of ways yeah uh, i always say like if it doesn't scare me i don't want to do it you know like it's mm. Stuff stuff has to excite you in that way a little bit. I, I personally yeah. would rather be a little bit uncomfortable, and that's that's kind of the whole like concept behind my live show is I I spin as many plates as possible to give myself <laughs> that edge of the seat feeling of terror, which pumps me full of adrenaline and allows me to complete a set. No, that's great. I love that. I relate to that too because I found that there's been times when I'm producing and I just get really lazy. And I just start doing the same thing over and over, but kind of pushing yourself to the limits and finding different ways of doing things. That's how I am with CliffX lately. I've been going super deep learning CliffX for a live performance workflow with looping. It's like, okay, I've done this, but how can I do something ridiculous on stage that scares me? Because I'm going to have to be doing more live in a secure way, like in a predictable way, but like also pushing myself beyond what I'm comfortable with typically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a whole nother rabbit hole of Cliff X. We don't have to talk about that. Well, I uh, love Cliff X, but I don't know. Last I checked in, it still wasn't like compatible with my setup yet. It was, um, have they finally made it compatible? Yeah. So I believe in like the next week or two, they're releasing Cliff X official for live 11. Okay. Well, that's, that's what I've been waiting for. Cause I, um, yeah. I delved into it, obviously, when I was teaching live performance, I actually had some of my students using it, but because it wasn't going to 11 right away, I was like, oh, well, that's the end of it for me. But no, I'm coming. a huge, huge fan of of like follow actions. Like I think a common misconception, I think what scares people away from live sets is they don't realize how fluid it is at this point 
to change between playback and real time and interweave them and, you know, create mm-hmm. something engaging. Like it doesn't have to be all one way and it doesn't have to be the other. It's not like Millie Vanilli or like monkey in the organ juggling, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and there's so many beautiful ways that you can make it enjoyable for yourself to yeah. be genuine and to be participating and letting the technology help you instead of either suffering or lip syncing, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess whenever I DJed behind decks in the past, I feel like for me personally, I would get bored. And that's not true for everybody. Like, it's not for everyone. But for me, like, as a jazz drumming background, and you also grew up playing classical and jazz and all mm-hmm. that stuff, like, I think we're inclined to want to actually perform as far as like doing more hands-on stuff in a live environment because that's more gratifying for me personally totally so yeah um actually i'd be curious i know we're getting close on time to the hour and i want to respect your time but uh can you share a little bit about your life setup i'm curious like when you've performed in the past or what you're doing in the future yeah so um i have a few different live sets and this comes from, you know, a long time on the road and just realizing that there's always different variables. Like for one, there's like, how much are you actually getting paid? Um, which, you know, as I get older and crankier, that does have a factor of like how complicated of a setup I'm willing to bring. bring. And then there's also what time slot you have and, you know, how easy is it to get there? Are you flying? Are you driving? So after years of all these variables, I sort of like my, my perfect set is like, almost like an accordion, like it can unfold really big, it can compress to be really small. And so there's a couple of different ways that I do it. And the most common way that I've done it over the last five or six years is this actual hybrid live slash DJ set. And so it uses both Traktor and Ableton. And for me, like I was a vinyl DJ from day one. So there is something really meditative uh, for me that is really part of the process with beat matching. And it, it's it's silly to people who have never tried it. But to me, it's like such a physical and mental, like almost a meditation. And I also find that like when I, when people match with Ableton, there is something a bit digital about it. Like it doesn't always get groove right. And because mm-hmm. I play a lot of like off grid groovy things, I just would never be impressed by the way the computer put them together. So for me, like designing any kind of live set, I'm like, okay, what are the most important things to a person? And for me, it is, I need that action of physically throwing the tracks in place next to each other. I need to be able to like slam it in and drag it back and just, you know, as you can see, if you're watching this podcast, I'm a very physical motion person. So that's <laughs> important to me. Uh, and then the second the second thing is to have as much fluidity as possible, considering that I'm also singing and rapping and playing instruments and beat matching. So I have Tractor as the master clock because, again, I don't like this fixed grid. I want to be able to throw my tunes around and speed them up and slow them down. So Tractor is actually the master sending out to Ableton. And um, I play my my tracks there and I often make minimal versions, you know, versions that are missing something for me to play live or even like sometimes I'll separate out stems. So there are lots of different ways that I, that I do this. And then I hook it into Ableton, which contains my instruments that I play either on a keyboard or a guitar or whatever I can get a hold of. And also 
regulates MIDI data and preset changes between my hardware because I also use a TC Helicon vocal processor. So Ableton is kind of sending that clock through and also communicating all kinds of things with the processor to change. I'm DJing my tracks, I'm singing on top of them, and then I'm playing keys and and sometimes looping. So that's that's kind of like my catch-all festival set. Um, In the last couple of years, when I had some time to experiment, I did a more like completely Ableton set. And for that, I was, it's a more dark pop style. You know, it wasn't so DJ styled. So it was more appropriate to play entire songs and to improvise and jam and do some live looping and play some keys. I had um, some wave MIDI rings. And so I was like controlling effects with my arms. Yeah. By Genki. Is that Genki wave ring? Yeah. And I got to say Bluetooth MIDI. Bluetooth MIDI, it's not 100% there, um, or at least like with their rings, I've had the worst luck. They drop out. So I have two, but usually only one works. But the thing is, is when it works, it's so profound because people respond to what they can see. And this is like right. a big reason why I think, you know, people who are not fully into electronic music will be like, I don't want to see this DJ. I don't want to see them stand there. I want to see them do something. Yeah. So it's really powerful with all the tech that that exists now that is motion related to mm-hmm. have something that captures it. So if I have yeah. my keytar, that's the accelerometer and I can throw it around. If not, I've got the MIDI rings. And yeah. above all, for me, movement is is really important. And that's what people respond to the most is just the physical, like, you know, what the stuff that we like, instrument playing, like moving, seeing that the person is creating it. So I want to take all the boring parts and I want Ableton to automate those. Like nobody needs to watch me change the preset on my processor. <laughs> Ableton can do that, but they do want right. to hear me sing and sing live. And so, you know, automating all this other stuff frees me up to do a really interesting engaging live set yeah yeah 100 percent. i completely agree and i feel like i adopt a lot of that into my sets as well uh, i caught the very tail end of your set at high grounds uh, this year and it was dope it was cool uh i wish i could have seen more of it but it was a it was a fun festival Yeah, I love festivals. And I think that's the thing I miss the most was, you know, playing so many festivals. It's an interesting time to see music kind of come back and to see where things go. And so I really did love that festival, too, because it had just been so long for me. And I hope that with all the changes in the industry that the classic, genuine, humble festival maintains, because there is something about like being out in the woods with like, you know, I would say under 10,000 people that is just like you create these connections, like it's an experience that I feel like everyone should always be able to have. Yeah, definitely. And it goes back to that community thing we were talking about earlier. Oh, we could probably wrap this up. I know that you've probably have a lot of stuff to do and I have to head out, but where is the best place for people to connect with you? And also like what upcoming projects do you have? Anything you want to share? Yeah, well, basically you can always, if you're a Discord user, discord.gg slash EDMP, that's the EDM production Discord, but don't be dissuaded by the word EDM. It's just because that's what the Reddit is called. So we're connected to them, but we're into all kinds of music and especially like I don't really make EDM. Anyone who knows my music knows that. So I'm always there along with an amazing volunteer team that will like answer all your production questions all the time, all over the world. Um, Ill-ESHA.com, that's 
it's my website and I'm not the best at updating it, but it is like a good central hub of all my projects that I usually put on. And, um, yeah, it's, I cannot talk about this really big project I'm doing over the next year yet, but I am going to be working with a really amazing company to make new devices and create new tech to inspire people like both hardware yeah. and software. And so I think that that's going to take up a lot of my time, but it's also going to give me some time to finish um, this album I've been putting off for a while. That's kind of a new identity and also to continue with LBC, which is the competition I was talking about. So LBC was started to be a community. And even though round one is over, I really want to keep outputting tutorials and workshops and community events. So we do Twitch and YouTube streams. If you go to ilbc.tv, that's got some of our stuff. And if you kind of follow us, I think we're going to be developing our streams and our YouTubes. And basically, I just want to be a force of inspiration. I also get just as inspired by the people I work with and continue to create these collaboration projects. So yeah, stay tuned on website, Discord, online. I'm pretty easy to find and there's going to be a lot of stuff in coming out over the next year. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. I'll definitely be uh, staying tuned to those things. And um, everybody listening, as always, uh, check out the links in the socials. I'll include the website and the social handles and all the good stuff for Alicia. So yeah, it's been good hanging out with you. Thank you for joining the podcast for sure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I mean, we're basically neighbors, so maybe we'll hang out in real life one of these days. Definitely. Let's do it. Cool. 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 I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Hey, big thanks to Alicia for hanging out on the podcast. Make sure you guys give her a follow and stay tuned for new episodes every other Tuesday right now. Hopefully in the near future, I'll be able to pump out some more content than every two weeks. But for now, hit that like, subscribe button. I'd really appreciate it. And much love to all of you listening to the podcast and supporting it. I put a lot of time and effort and work into the podcast. And so I don't take it lightly when you guys share or like. So yeah, really appreciate all of you listening. And until the next episode, go make some hot tracks. I will see you next time. Later. <laughs>